Chapter Seven of the Gold Hunters by James Oliver Curwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Seven, on the Trail of Gold. And each day thereafter, the sun rose earlier, and the day was longer, and the air was warmer. And with the warmth, there now came the sweet scents of the budding earth and the myriad sounds of the deep unseen life of the forests, awakening from its long slumber in its bed of snow. The moose-birds chirped their mating songs, and flirted from morning till night in bough and air, and the jays and ravens fluffed themselves in the sun, and the snow-birds, little black and white beauties that were wont to whisk about like so many flashing gems, became fewer and fewer until they were gone altogether. The poplar buds swelled more and more in their joy, until they split like over-fat peas, and the partridges feasted upon them. And Mother Bear came out of her winter den, accompanied by her little ones born two months before, and taught them how to pull down the slender saplings for these same buds. And the moose came down from the blizzardy tops of the great ridges, which are called mountains in the north, and where for good reasons they had passed the winter followed by the wolves who fed upon their weak and sick. Everywhere there were the rushing torrents of melting snows, the crackle of crumbling ice, the dying frost cries of rock and earth and tree, and each night the cold pale glow of the aurora borealis crept farther and farther toward the pole in fading glory. It was spring, and at Wabinosh House it brought more joy than elsewhere, for there Roderick Drew joined his mother. We have not time here to dwell on the things that happened at the old Hudson Bay Post during the ten days after their first happy reunion, of the love that sprang up between Rod's mother and Minnetaki, and the princess wife of George Newsom, the factor, of the departure of the soldiers whose task of running down Wuonga ended with Rod's desperate fight in the cabin or of the preparations of the gold-hunters themselves. On a certain evening in April, Wabi, Mukoki, and Rod had assembled in the latter's room. The next morning they were to start on their long and thrilling adventure into the far north, and on this last night they went carefully over their equipment and plans to see that nothing had been forgotten. That night Rod slept little. For the second time in his life, the fever of adventure was running wild in his blood. After the others had gone, he studied the precious old map until his eyes grew dim. In the half-slumber that came to him afterward, his brain worked ceaselessly, and he saw visions of the romantic old cabin again, and the rotting buckskin bag filled with nuggets of gold on the table. He was up before the stars began fading in the dawn, and in the big dining-room of the post, in which had gathered the factors and their families for two hundred years, the boys ate their breakfast with those whom they were about to leave for many weeks, perhaps months. The factor himself was boisterously cheerful in his efforts to keep up the good cheer of Mrs. Drew and the princess mother, and even Minnetaki forced herself to smile and laugh, though her eyes were red, and all knew that she had been crying. Rod was glad when the meal was over and they went out into the chill air of the morning and down to the edge of the lake 
where their big birch-bark canoe was loaded and waiting for their departure, and he was still more relieved when they had bade a last good-bye to the two mothers. But Minnetaki came down to the canoe with them, and when Wabi kissed her she burst into tears, and Rod felt a queer thickening in his throat as he took her firm little hand and held it for a moment between both his own. "'Good-bye, Minnetaki,' he whispered. He turned and took his position in the middle of the canoe, and with a last shout Wabi shoved off and the canoe sped out into the gloom. For a long time there was silence except for the rhythmic dip of the three paddles. Once Minnetaki's voice came to them faintly, and they answered it with a shout, but that was all. After a time Rod said, "'By George, this saying good-bye is the toughest part of the whole business.' His words cleared away the feeling of oppression that seemed to have fallen on them. "'It's always hard for me to leave Minnetaki,' replied Wabigoan. "'Some day I'm going to take her on a trip with me.' "'She'd be a bully fellow,' cried Rod with enthusiasm. From the stern of the canoe came a delighted chuckle from Mukoki. She brave, she shoot, she hunt, she be damn fine, he added, and both Rod and Wabi burst out laughing. The young Indian looked at his compass by the light of a match. We'll strike straight across Lake Nipigon instead of following the shore. What do you say, Muki? he called back. The old pathfinder was silent. In surprise, Wabi ceased paddling and repeated his question. "'Don't you think it is safe?' Mukoki wet his hand over the side and held it above his head. "'Wind in south,' he said. "'Maybe no get stronger, but—' "'If she did,' added Rod dubiously, noting how heavily laden the canoe was, "'we'd be in a fix as sure as you live. "'It will take us all of today and half of tomorrow to follow the shore,' urged Wabi while by cutting straight across the lake we can make the other side early this afternoon. Let's risk it." Mukoki grunted something that was a little less than approval, and Rod felt a peculiar sensation shoot through him as the frail birch headed out into the big lake. Their steady strokes sent the canoe through the water at fully four miles an hour, and by the time broad day had come, the forest-clad shore of Wabinosh House was only a hazy outline in the distance. The white youth's unspoken fears were dispelled when the sun rose, warm and glorious, over the shimmering lake, driving the chill from the air and seeming to bring with it the sweet scents of the forests far away. Joyfully he labored at his paddle, the mere exhilaration of the morning filling his arms with the strength of a young giant. Wabi whistled and sang wild snatches of Indian song by turns. Rod joined him with Yankee Doodle and the Star-Spangled Banner, and even the silent Mukoki gave a whoop now and then to show that he was as happy as they. One thought filled the minds of all. They were fairly started on that most thrilling of all trails, the Trail of Gold. And their possession was the secret of a great fortune. Romance, adventure, discovery awaited them. The big, silent north, mysterious in its age-old desolation, 
where even the wind seemed to whisper of strange things that had happened countless years before, was just ahead of them. They were about to bury themselves in its secrets, to wrest from it the yellow treasure it guarded, and their blood tingled and leaped excitedly at the thought. What would be revealed to them? What might they not discover? What strange adventures were they destined to encounter in that unknown world, peopled only by the things of the wild, that stretched trackless and unexplored before them? A hundred thoughts like these fired the brains of the three adventurers, and made their work a play, and every breath they drew one of joy. The lake was alive with ducks, huge flocks of big black ducks, mallards, bluebills, and whistlers rose about them, and now and then, when an unusually large flock was seen floating upon the waters ahead of them, one of the three would take a pot-shot with his rifle. Rod and Mukoki had each killed two, and Wabi three, when the old warrior stopped the fun. "'No waste too much shooting on ducks,' he advised. "'Need shells. Big game.' Several times during the morning the three rested from their exertions, and at noon they ceased paddling for more than an hour while they ate the generous dinner that had been put up for them at Wabinosh House. The farther side of the lake was now plainly visible, and when the journey was resumed all eyes eagerly sought for signs of the mouth of the Ombabika, where their stirring adventurers of the winter before had begun. For some time Wabi's gaze had been fixed upon a long, white rim along the shore, to which he now called his companion's attention. "'It seems to be moving,' he said, turning to Mukoki. "'Is it possible?' he paused doubtfully. "'What?' questioned Rod. "'That it's swans,' he completed. "'Swans?' cried the young hunter. "'Great Scott! Do you mean to say that there could be enough swans?' "'They sometimes cover the lake in thousands,' said Wabi. "'I have seen them whitening the water as far as one could see.' "'More swan as you count in twenty thousand year,' affirmed Mukoki. After a few moments he added, "'Them no swan. Ice!' There was an unpleasant ring in his voice as he spoke the last word and though Rod did not fully understand what significance the discovery held for them, he could not but observe that it occasioned both of his comrades considerable anxiety. The cause was not long in doubt. Another half-hour of brisk paddling brought them to the edge of a frozen field of ice that extended for a quarter of a mile from the shore. In both directions it stretched beyond their vision. Wabi's face was filled with dismay. Mukoki sat with his paddle across his knees, uttering not a sound. "'What's the matter?' asked Rod. "'Can't we make it?' "'Make it?' exclaimed Wabigawan. "'Yes, perhaps tomorrow or the next day.' "'Do you mean to say we can't get over that ice?' "'That's just exactly the predicament we are in.' The edge of that ice is rotten. The canoe had drifted alongside the ice, and Rod began pounding it with his paddle. For a distance of two feet it broke off in chunks, then became more firm. 
"'I believe that if we cut our way in for a canoe length or so it would hold us,' he declared. Wabi reached for an axe. "'We'll try it!' Mukoki shook his head. But for a second time that day Wabigoon persisted in acting against the old Pathfinder's judgment, something that Rod had never known him to be guilty of before. Foot by foot he broke the ice ahead of the canoe until the frail craft had thrust its length into the rotten field. Then, steadying himself on the bow, he stepped out cautiously upon the ice. "'There!' he cried triumphantly. "'You next, Rod. Steady!' In a moment Rod had joined him. What happened after that seemed to pass like a terrible nightmare. First there came a light cracking in the ice under their feet, but it was over in an instant. Wabi was laughing at him for the fear that had come into his face and calling his name, when with a thunderous crash the whole mass gave way under them, and they plunged down into the black depths of the lake. The last that Rod saw was his friend's horror-stricken face sinking in the crumbling ice. He heard a sharp, terrible cry from Mukoki, and then he knew that the cold waters had engulfed him, and that he was battling for his life under the surface. Fiercely he struck out with arms and legs in an effort to rise, and in that moment of terror he thought of the great sheet of ice. What if he should come up under it? In which direction should he strike out? He opened his eyes, but all was a black chaos about him. The seconds seemed like ages. There came a splitting, rending sensation in his head, an almost overpowering desire to open his mouth, to gasp, gasp for air where there was nothing but death. Then his head struck something. It was the ice. He had come up under the ice and there was but one end to that. He began to sink again, slowly, as if an invisible hand were pulling him down, and in his despair he made a last frantic effort, striking out blindly, knowing that in another second he must open his mouth. Even under the water he still had consciousness enough left to know that he tried to cry out, and he felt the first gurgling rush of water into his lungs but he did not see the long arm that reached down where the bubbles were coming up. He did not feel the grip that dragged him out upon the ice. His first sense of life was that something very heavy was upon his stomach, and that he was being rubbed and pummeled and rolled about as if he had become a plaything of a great bear. Then he saw Mukoki and then Wabigawan. "'You go build fire!' he heard Mukoki say, and he could hear Wabi running swiftly shoreward, for he knew that they were still upon the ice. The canoe was drawn safely up a dozen feet away, and the old Indian was dragging blankets from it. When Mukoki turned, he found Rod resting upon his elbow, looking at him. "'That, what you call him, close shave,' he grinned, placing a supporting arm under Rod's shoulder. With Mukoki's assistance, the youth rose to his feet, and a thick blanket was wrapped about him. Slowly they made their way shoreward, and soon Wabi came running out to meet them, dripping wet. "'Rod, when we get thawed out, I want you to kick me,' 
he pleaded. "'I want you to kick me good and hard, and then I'll take great pleasure in kicking you. And ever after this, when we do a thing that Mukoki tells us not to do, we'll kick some more.' "'Who pulled us out?' asked Rod. "'Mukoki, of course. Will you kick me?' "'Shake!' and the two dripping, half-frozen young adventurers shook hands, while Mukoki chuckled and grunted and gurgled until he set the others bursting into laughter. End of chapter 7 Recording by Roger Moline